Warning. The podcast you are about to experience may contain content that isn't suitable for younger audiences. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Welcome to Villainology, a podcast revolving around our favorite personifications of humanity's darker side, and what truly makes them the scourge of their respective worlds. I am your host, Rob Mobley, and I'm going to need you all to grab your psychotically enchanted quills because we are going back to magic school this week. For those of you that are new here, the basic idea is that I present each guest an opportunity to discuss at length someone who is widely considered to be a villain, and to offer their own personal insight as to why they find them so intriguing. These opinions are totally subjective, and I find that hearing the thoughts of other people on someone you either love to hate or hate to love helps to better understand these characters as a whole. Our guest today is someone who is mentioned in a previous episode for having an encyclopedic knowledge of the wizarding world. Uh, she's an actress, she can roll a mean d20, and I'm convinced that she is the lost iteration of River Song from Doctor Who, Lauren Culver. Welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, that is the best introduction I've ever gotten in my entire life. I'm putting <laughs> it on my resume. Thank you. Well, the epithets are not hyperbole whatsoever. I mean, you... Your life has been heavily impacted by the Potter universe. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh my goodness. Well, I've been deeply obsessed since I was a child. I think the only the first two were out when I started reading them. So I was a big reader, always have been, but I was the one who was reading the classics, you know, and all the kids in my school were, oh, you should read this Harry Potter. But I was the kid who was like, mm, everyone's reading that. I'm going to uh, read I'm reading Treasure Jane Island. Eyre at the moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. I read Little Women in like second grade. Of course um, you did. <laughs> but I was, I was tried to put it off, put it off. My best friend's mom gave it to me and I read it that night and the next day appeared on their doorstep. Not to see my best friend, but to see her and ask for the second one. And it has been <laughs> history ever since. A love story with a beautifully, beautifully written series that I could talk about forever and will. And aside from loving it just for fun and as a geek, I, I spend my adult life literally pretending to be a witch for money. It's pretty much the best thing ever. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's how you and I first met. We, yeah. we, we both helped open Diagon Alley mm -hmm. and you are for lack of a better term, one of the best backup singers to the singing sorceress herself. Yes, that's about the best term we can give it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Molly Weasley would be very impressed with me, which I feel like is the most important thing in life, is to do Hell well yeah. by Molly Weasley, you know? I feel like that should be everybody's goal at this point. If right? you disappointed Molly Weasley, then what are you doing with your life? I know. I didn't crash their flying for Anglia, so I'm doing better than, you know, her kid. Yeah, I feel like no one disappoints Molly Weasley more than her own children no. at this point. Except maybe her husband. <laughs> That's also true. But at this point, I feel like he has just made it his life's goal to just see how far he can tow that line, you know? So true. Oh, Molly Wobbles. Speaking of, of diving deep into all of this, tell us, Lauren Culver, which villain have you chosen? Oh, that evil, sadistic, horrifying, all too real, for lack of a better term, woman, because I don't even think she's human, Dolores Jane Umbridge. Pardon me, Professor, but what exactly are you insinuating? I am merely requesting that when it comes to my students, you conform to the prescribed disciplinary practices. 
So silly of me, but it sounds as if you're questioning my authority in my own classroom. Minerva. Not at all, Dolores. Merely your medieval methods. I am sorry, dear. But to question my practices is to question the ministry, and by extension, the minister himself. I am a tolerant woman, but the one thing I will not stand for is disloyalty. Disloyalty. Things at Hogwarts are far worse than I feared. Cornelius will want to take immediate action. <laughs> so, uh... How very dare you. <laughs> so, why, why Umbridge? Well, she's just... Okay, so in the Harry Potter series, we have the beautiful... Not beautiful in a way that is good, but beautifully written, evil ultra-villain in Voldemort, right? Who is this purely evil creature, almost, born of a lack of love, completely dehumanized because he completely breaks his soul down over and over. And that is the arch villain, right? Like this is the one that the whole series is against, but he isn't someone that you meet in your life. You don't, you don't meet Voldemort on the street. I mean, at least I haven't. You get that archetypal embodiment of evil in your life, but Umbridge? Umbridge is the woman that you have met. Like you have met this human being in multiple different points in your life. You have met someone who has done the thing she has done because she is everyday sadistic. Truly, like she she embodies all the things that you run into as a human being in, in other human beings. This this corruption of power, this complete love of power, but in a way that she pretends isn't happening. She basically gaslights everyone, right? Mm -hmm. she, she spends her whole time going, oh, I'm, I'm this beautiful girlish, you know, I'm just this innocent little creature, but she's as evil as Voldemort. And she's fascinating to me for that reason. And I will try not to say everything I have to say about her as you ask one question, because I almost just monologued. For no, me. I legit, as you like tried, to, you did that impression of her. I felt my skin start to crawl. like, oh my God. Yes, it's visceral. Like I remember reading Order of the Phoenix for the first time and just wanting to throw the book away from myself. Yes. Like just, just this, it just this disgusted. Like I, I'm right now, I feel it in the pit of my stomach that and i was a teenager right i was a teenager and the reason something cannot affect you in a story that strongly unless you have related to it right mm -hmm. like as human beings we can't we, we we can't relate intensely with something unless we have experience of it in some way shape or form even if we aren't conscious of it right and that is why she is so brilliant and she is this force she's she is We've met her. We've met her over and over again, this obsessive love for personal power and control and how she has basically become the lie, she tells, because her whole life is a lie and she flips it on everyone else, which I will go into now. I feel like right now I'm starting to talk about her and all these like wonderfully formed out things that I've thought about have just become this mass of like black goo in my head. See, this <laughs> is why I bring you on the show because I know that that's exactly what's happening in your psyche at the moment. Literally. It's timey-wimey in there. It's very overwhelming. What do you think drives her as a person? I mean, she came into the school as as one thing and ended up taking it over and adding all of these rules and all of these laws and, and basically changed Hogwarts from being one thing to being something completely totalitarian. Mm -hmm. Why? Why control. is is solely control? Well, I don't think anyone's motivation is solely one thing, but if I have to choose a like a super objective, if that's the word, the word is control because, and I, I'm pretty sure I have JKR to back me up on that because she's talked about that. She is 
if you think about not only is she literally controlling the school, which we'll talk about in a bit, because I want to go into the educational decrees, yeah. but, but controlling, we'll start with her perception. So let's, I'm going to, I'm going to flip back on you and I'm going to go back to her origin story, which is on Pottermore. So she was born, she is a half-blood witch, which in the Harry Potter series, of course, there is a, a important tale being told about how within cultures we pit ourselves against one another based on how we're born and things like that that ultimately sure. don't matter of course she is the only daughter of a wizard who is i'm gonna his orford was his name orford, orford yes orford Th- Umbridge. that explains a lot actually <laughs> right exactly right and, and her mom's name was ellen cracknell who was a muggle and she had a squib son so she had a little brother dolores jane umbridge had a little brother who was a squib So about the time they were 15, their whole family actually split up because Dolores hated her mom and her younger brother so much. And her dad also did. They split up when she was 15. The mom and the son went to go live in the muggle world. And the father and daughter stayed in the wizarding world. And they just like never talked to each other again because that's how much they disliked something not coming from magic when she herself did not come purely from magic. That's so gross. Oh my God. Exactly. It gets worse because they never spoke to either of them. And Orford was actually, he just worked, I think in the department of magical maintenance. Yeah. So he was basically a janitor, right? Like he is a working class man who worked in the ministry. But as she started to rise in the ministry, she paid him off to pretend that that wasn't the case. And literally just threatened everybody in the ministry as she started to rise through. What, What is the, it's so good. The Pottermore quote. Where she says, like, she managed to claw her way up to the top and anybody that would challenge her, nasty things would happen to. So people just left her alone, basically. Because she would try to convince everyone that she was a pureblood. And as, as we know, of course, by the time you're in Deathly Hallows, she is using the locket of Salazar Slytherin to say that she is from the Selwyn family, right? She has become, she is literally a lie. She is a lie because she is a half-blood. And in her mind, she's created this this split in reality of the truth of her situation and then the truth she wants everyone else to see. And she is living the truth that she wants everyone else to see and saying, I'm this pure blood. I'm this wonderful when she's, she's just not. So she starts to believe the delusion and that takes on an evil. Like truly when we, when we don't tell the truth, even to ourselves, there is a kind of evil that comes from that, that then guides the rest of your life until she's up there threatening all these poor witches and wizards taking away their wands and sending them to Azkaban and enjoying it as she sits in court over them all when she is one of them. It's like the example of an an archetype, her shadow aspect taking on its own personality because she refuses to see it. It's horrifying. That's the most fascinating thing, especially with the whole locket, Mm -hmm. with how evil she was. Mm -hmm. Why was she not a Death Eater? Well, because J.K. Rowling is brilliant. Because, uh, well, you know, any uh, writing, this is all I'm talking about right now. Sure, team. of course. But the because the world isn't split into good people and death eaters, right? The, the idea that, that, that we like to think of good and bad is very black and white. But this human being who J.K. Rowling herself has said, there's very little to differ between her and Bellatrix Lestrange except for their loyalties, right? And in fact, when the death eaters take over the ministry... They immediately were like, oh, great, glad you're still here because just her personality, you know, of course they were in disguise at that moment, but her personality allied so much with what they were doing. As she rose to the ministry, there's a good one on Pottermore where she says that, um, so as she's like rising through the ministry, which she did, by the way, just by sucking up, she did it by 
sucking up by sweet talking the positions of power and making them believe that she was the only one who was really loyal to them. Do you think if if the Death Eaters were not in disguise mm-hmm. and full blown were like we are in control of the Ministry of Magic and there's nothing you can do about it right now. If like they, if everybody knew that the Death Eaters were in control, do you still think she would have wanted to stay in power? Yes. By that point, yes. Because she leads up this whole charge on the, th- that they say, what is it? The, the Muggle, I can't think of the name of the committee and that's going to drive me insane. Oh, the... Um, Muggle, Muggle-born registration. Yes. Yes. She heads that up. And that the whole Death Eater pledge sort of is really that pure bloods are the only wizards that deserve to be and she is openly okay saying we have to round up all the muggleborns and get rid of them so it to my mind that is as as good as saying i am a death eater based off of the actions she had in order of the phoenix with all the shit she pulled how was she able to still retain a position within the ministry after that fun fact that is answered because she did all that stuff in Order of the Phoenix. But because right after Order of the Phoenix, the ministry was dealing with the fact that, oh, by the way, Voldemort was back and we're a bunch of idiots. And they had to actually backtrack on all the lies they were doing and, and get things figured out. She just slipped under the radar, which then, of course, bit them in the butt because that is why Harry, Ron, and Hermione wouldn't ally with them at all when Scrimgeour came into power. Basically, the, the reason... He used when he and Scrimgeour are in the in um, the Weasley Garden talking is like is Umbridge still working there, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> it, it and it's true. And she so she slipped through the cracks is what I think that's a that's also a Pottermore reference that that J.K. said she slipped through the cracks essentially. And then of course the next regime that took over was the Death Eaters, and they were like, well, she's great. She was ultimately after the fall of the Death Eaters put on trial for all of the murders she caused from people dying in Azkaban that were sent there unjustly she for torture imprisonment and deaths of several people she was convicted of Good um, God. And, and it's it's just it's horrifying because she's this controlling manipulative truly sadistic human being wrapped in pink bows which i know that um jkr has talked about having really noticed in life that often somebody with no real warmth is really drawn to the very like twee is the word she uses like very like pretty you know like umbridge has all those kittens all over everything and and it's also in pottermore that the the more sort of evil and corrupted she got the more she liked sweet things and it's to me just shows this really interesting psychological coping mechanism where her brain knew she was just awful somewhere deep down her brain knew that she was lying but she couldn't admit she was lying so she had to keep covering up the facts she she knew she was lying to uphold an unjust system, right? And in order to do that, she has to just keep diving deeper into the deeper into the lie. We see it all over the place. We're seeing it right now in 2020 with so many people in positions of power. It's not even, you don't even need me to say their names. Where, where they genuinely believe that the lies they are saying, even if they said something different yesterday, are true. And that is why this villain is so important because she was written into a book that was for teenagers at this point. And as a teenager, I read this book, and the minute things started to happen the way they were going down the last four or five years, the, the minute I went, well, this isn't, this isn't right. This is the ministry pretending things aren't happening. You know, and I, I read history books. I'm an educated person, but fiction, story has such a beautiful way of sticking with us on a level that history doesn't always, for better or for worse. And the more power she got, the more problems she caused, because at that point, the ministry was just... Well, I'm going to 
stop talking for a second and let you no, please. ask your question. I, no, no I, I, by all means, I, like, I'm thoroughly just enjoying just this, this absolute train of thought here. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, she, in my mind, presents the ultimate version of a facade. Yes. The idea that, you know, yeah, she, she surrounds herself by, like you said, twee objects to really hide the fact of how just monstrous she is underneath. Specifically, why do you think she went out of her way so much to denounce the fact that Voldemort was back? Why do you think she, like, is it, is it just because that's what she was told to do? And because of that, that was the only way she could maintain power? Or did you think that there was, like, some honesty to that? Do you honestly think that she believed that Voldemort was not back in power? That's a great question. And I, I think it's both. Because, number one, I think that her ultimate goal and her ultimate truth being trying to control she had finally gotten herself in the pocket of the minister of magic and that 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 was that was it you know like she she has this amazing position of power she's being given as much control as she wants over hogwarts a place where she never got control like she wanted she was she was always passed over for positions of authority when she was at hogwarts and so she is sadistically taking that out i've used that word way too many times so like this, <laughs> this episode brought to you by the word sadistic um Whee! out of the students of hogwarts um so first of all i think it is because she had the position she wanted and the establishment that was giving her that power said he wasn't back and so she just chose to follow through with that logic because again she's lying to herself about everything so why on earth should she check facts about this i think facts are below her at this point and then I also think that she didn't want it to be true because in a controlling, anything that is different from her is scary. The, the, the fear, that, that's where the whole, her open hatred of what she calls quote unquote half breeds comes from. This fear, which is another reason she is so monstrously evil. And we see this all over the place in this world. And I don't even mean just in the overt ways, like different cultures, different people, but the ways in which human beings fear what they are not. And how much division and hatred and that that is the ultimate evil in the world. And, and she embodies that. This feeling of like, oh, this half-breed, this person, half-human, half-giant, or these centaurs, or these amazing magical beings, I hate them all and I want to restrict them and control them because I fear them. So the need for control almost always comes out of fear. And if Voldemort was back, she couldn't control that. She had She'd have to fear that. She wouldn't have control over that. So I think... Even if part of her thought it might be true, she would continue to lie to herself and tell herself it wasn't. Is there anything sympathetic about her? Is there any empathy that can be found within her character? Or is she just that devoid Man, I just of can't. any sort of, of feeling? The stank face I'm making right now. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have any pity for her. I don't have any empathy for her because, I mean, I think it's important to have empathy for all beings on some level, but I think what makes her so powerful is that I almost have less empathy for her than I have for Voldemort because she was born, if we're talking childhood, like let's go back. So I'm not talking about the actions they did later, but I'm saying sure. she, she was born from these two people that decided to, to have a child together so they had choice in this matter right like and it's referenced that she was hateful and hated her younger brother and her mother from an early age like she so to me that hatred is just completely in there 
that's a terrible way to say that. The <laughs> hatred was very apparent in her. Like it's part of her to just be spiteful. And I, I mean, maybe, maybe if there was an amazing backstory where we find out that but when she was a child, she was bullied because she was a half-blood and this is the way that she took it out on people. But that's not there, right? right. And Voldemort was born out of a literal lack of love, which is the underlying point of the whole series. Like he was born from a quote unquote love potion. There was no true affection involved. So nature versus nurture. The idea is sort of that he was meant to be that way. I also don't have pity for him though. Let the record show. I'm not going, not going team (laughs) moldy boldy over here, but I, I don't, I do not have pity for her, which is a really fascinating thing to me. And part of the reason I find her so interesting because it is very easy for me to find empathy for characters. She has, we, we talked about this a little bit with Voldemort. Uh, she has only been adapted as a character. Actually, I take that back. She's been adapted twice. Once by the incredible Melda Staunton in the movies. And then, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Cursed Child at all, if you're a listener out there and you haven't seen Cursed Child, she is in the show. I didn't even think about that. I'm awful because I cannot remember the actress who originated that character. I do, however, remember that when I read the script before seeing it and then her name pops up you talked about throwing a book i literally threw mine across the room and yelped i was that horrified same (laughs) i oh god just i i I have never felt that visceral reaction to someone coming back no as i did with her and And if i I remember isn't it like a hum hum like isn't it like a it's well yeah it's it's at the very end of of the first show yes and he, cause he emerges from the lake oh, that's and right. oh. she's there. And then that's when the, the Dementors come out and it reveals that mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, Voldemort day. Oh my gosh. It, it, you're right though. And the fact that that was your visceral reaction just speaks to that character so much. My nine-year-old niece today who just finished the books recently, I told her that I was getting on to record a podcast about um, Umbridge and she was like, well, she's the literal worst. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just the truth. <laughs> It will. So speaking of, the, so we've had these two iterations, but if there was ever, a, well, inevitably, when there will be another adaptation of this story. Oh gosh. What do you want to see out of this character that you didn't get to see out of it the first couple times? Interesting question. I didn't think about this one ahead of time. I. I, think I mean, because Imelda Staunton really kind of hammered really, it in there really well. Yeah. It, I, honestly, I loved her interpretation. My biggest. This is going to be so on brand if you know me, but my biggest lack, the thing I, the thing I want more of would, I would really like to see it done exactly like the books, because even in that movie, which they, I actually liked the adaptation of that movie for the most part. And I loved her acting of that role, but we missed, we missed a lot of things in the book that I would really have liked to see in the movie. And and just even seeing all that, I loved the bits about the decrees like I love that we were like Filch on a higher ladder now for more comedic value but it did take away we needed some levity so I understand why and because they were focusing on the trio but I just seeing the actual decrees break down because if you look at what each of them is doing it's a really important sort of like global statement in my opinion Mm -hmm. like if you look at what each of the decrees is doing it's showing you how how systems that are meant to help us get overthrown from inside it's like the other canon star wars line where it's like oh so this is how democracy dies to thundering applause like to thunderous applause and i i think i would like to see all of those handled differently because if you look at okay so 22 started this isn't really about the 
portrayal of the character, and I'm sorry that I just took it a different direction. No, but, please. But I really loved how she acted the character. But Decree 22 is the first one they talk about, and that's the one that, that, is, that gave the Ministry the power to fill a position if the Headmaster can't, to fill the defense against the Dark Arts post, which starts innocently enough, you know, like, oh, the Ministry, oh, we're just, we're just going to help out if, you know, you don't get it done. And then 23 gave her the role of High Inquisitor, which is a new, which is, of course, a new position where she can then um, go over, she can maybe even trump the other teachers and, 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 and decide, you know, what's right and wrong. So then we get the new position, you can override that system, and it starts to break it down a little bit. 24 disbands the student groups teams gatherings those things so then it starts telling all the individuals in this school where they're where they're meant to go get educated and start to think for themselves what they can and can't do in their free time based on what this person thinks and then 25 gives her the power over all punishment so she then takes away the judicial system essentially she becomes the judicial system too she's breaking down all the different forms of the government right and then 26 stops teachers from saying anything except what they are told so it's censorship so you're just you're just watching the breakdown of what happens when institutions like the Ministry of Magic, which someday you and I just need to talk about how messed up that entire organization well, is, because that's a yeah, whole other podcast. You you watch again all these decrees go up, and you're just sitting there like, if anything, you're almost more pissed at Cornelius Fudge for letting this happen. Oh sure, he's the and, worst. Corn Fudge is the worst. Dumbledore is just like, eh, I'm doing my own thing right now. I mean, this sucks, but. You'll get through it. Well, is he, though? I mean, okay, yeah. Dumbledore definitely does not handle things as well as he could in Order of the Phoenix, but that's part of why he's an interesting character, right? Is that right, he, of course. he's not doing those things. But he also isn't just openly defying... He's not spending his time openly defying the system. He's completely going around the system and going, I gotta figure out how to bring down Voldemort over here. Cause this oh, is yeah, he's like, he's, he's, he's big picture over here. Meanwhile, McGonagall is like, can we just, <laughs> for once... To handle what's happening right now. Poor, poor McGonagall. <laughs> she, she's, she's the like, best. Like, I'm, I'm glad you're like three steps ahead of the program right now. Yeah. But like, we have a bunch of shit right in front of us right now. Can yeah, we literally. deal with this at the moment? McGee holds it down in that book. She's great. Oh. It's a really good book for her. Uh, have a biscuit potter. Oh, <laughs> just, just the, just the a, best. Don't be ridiculous, too. Like when he won't take a second one. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Like, if anything, that was the moment that really solidified just how much I loved her oh, as gosh. a character. I love oh, her so much. God. That moment when they, which this was a, the way they staged it in the film, I think is actually really brilliant, where they have the stair steps, where they have Umbridge and McGonagall standing on stairs, and then they, like, yes. take a step up on each other as they're having the conversation about what's right and wrong. And anyway, that's a whole other thing. Oh, I know details yeah. too well. She's a nerd! <laughs> I, I yeah, boo you for knowing this kind of stuff. Final thoughts on Umbridge. What does she mean to you personally? She, long dramatic pause, was a fictional embodiment of a lot of different ways in which I had, I had specifically experienced evil and oppression and anger in my life. Not to say that anything specifically in my personal life, but even as a teenager, I was like, oh, I've seen this. I have seen this person. I have seen the person who comes in and tells you, you're lying. You must not tell lies. When you are telling a truth that is like that, the whole must not tell lies thing with Harry is emotional manipulation at its worst. Like this, this child has been through something 
traumatic. He has watched someone die. He he knows this truth, which is why anyone who gives fifth Harry Potter, you know, fifth book Harry Potter a hard time about how he's reacting to things just needs to reread it and have a little empathy because he's literally being gaslit to the point of saying, you're making this up. You're, you're telling lies. Uh, Dolores Umbridge is the only person besides Voldemort to leave a physical scar on Harry Potter's body. And mm-hmm. it is, I must not tell lies on his hand. That you are a liar, you are wrong. And in many different ways in life, we, we are met with, you are making this up. You are crazy. Especially as a woman, the amount of times I've been told that I am crazy, when I am in fact very, very right about what's going on, and how hurtful that information and that statement can be on a very deep level. That is an evil that touches people every day. And having a character who, of course, exists in a magical world, right? You know, Harry Potter's not real. <gasps> I wish it was. Um, <laughs> but having a character like that is important. It's the reason this is a side spin. Fairy tales. Fairy tales are important to children because archetypally we need to have a name for the evil we experience in the world and young children have to have that experience but as we get older it happens too we need to see a fictional face to something that we experience so that we can sort of process it it's like it's like seeing death and seeing thestrals in harry potter you don't get to see thestrals if you just happen to see someone die you only see thestrals if you've processed emotionally that that death has happened and i feel like fictional characters even truly evil horrible ones like umbridge give us another tool to start to hate this fictional character because we can hate this fictional character because she's not a real person in the world. We can, we can, we can throw more, we can take umbrage, take offense. <laughs> That's she's named Dolores because Dolores means sorrow and umbrage like the, it's spelled differently, but the British term to take umbrage, like to take offense. We can take offense at this character in a way that we may not allow ourselves with real individuals in our life and process through that thing. And then as we develop, we can notice when these really unjust, horrible things are happening and make better decisions about them as adults. So having characters like her who are just so sicky sweet and so looking like they're, oh, well, I'm just, you know, over here. Even when she's torturing Harry, at the end when they find Harry in the fireplace trying to contact Creature or trying to contact Sirius, and in the book, she's like, well, it says she's gearing herself up for something and she's about to torture him to perform the Cruciatus Curse, which is one of the most illegal things you can do and she's going well i didn't want to but you made me do it like it's in the writing that you made me do this like the way people will justify doing truly horrible things by emotionally manipulating other people is very present and very scary and that took 75 turns may the force be with you in editing anything that i've said today (laughs) (laughs) no that oh i'm i'm so glad you came on the show this is this is when we first mentioned that you were going to be able to come on this, I was like, this is this is the conversation I wanted, and you brought it. This was fantastic. I'm glad you came on. Well, thank you. It was awesome to be here. I will talk about this all day, every day. I'm going to leave a couple links in the description below. Uh, the first is for the Actors Fund. Lauren, is there anything you would like to say about that? Well, as we've been talking so much, well, about the importance of stories and the way in which story helps us process our emotions and our very real feelings in this world... In the time that we are in right now with COVID and everything, so many of the storytellers that you rely on to bring you joy. As everyone who's been in quarantine watching Netflix shows and, you know, all this live theater, the people who bring you those stories are pretty much all out of work. Pretty much all of them. And it's 
a really overwhelming and scary time. So anything you could give to that actor's fund would mean the world to me and also to you because in the earliest recorded cultures, there was a person called a poet and the poet knew where the water was and the storytellers know where the water is and we want to keep paying attention to the world and keep supporting the truths that we want to live in together. Um, so any money you could give to the artist fund would be very appreciated. 100%. I'm also going to leave a link for the Trevor project as well. The fight for the LGBTQ plus rights is far from over. And the Trevor project has proven time and again, to be a safe haven for people within that community. They provide crisis intervention and suicide prevention services, especially to young people who are struggling to find their identity and their voice within this world to donate to both the actors fund and or to the trevor project i'm going to leave both of those links below i know times are hard but if you have anything to spare please do thank you to ross lampert for composing the theme song to this podcast he's a brilliant guy and if you're in the market for any music production needs head on over to his website at daggerandink.com and thank you listener for carving out a little bit of time for us today if you like the show please consider following us on facebook and instagram at villainology podcast and give us a review if you like what we're doing Apparently it helps with algorithms on iTunes, maybe, something like that. So if you do that, that's great. And drop us a comment on who you'd like to see discussed next. And hopefully we will see you next time. Stay foolish, mortals. <laughs>